To give a lecture named after Father James Shawl is a true honor. Uh, when I think about Father Shawl, I, I not only think about his wonderful personality, his great teaching ability, but his prodigious scholarship and writing. In fact, I joked, I remember joking with a friend saying that I think he writes with both hands. <laughs> you know, it was, it's amazing the amount of work that he uh, produced over the years, not only scholarship, but also work that is accessible. And it is that accessibility that I hope to emulate here this evening in my own lecture. Uh, you know, I, this is, uh, I was gonna, because no, I think virtually no one's wearing a mask, I, I, I was actually gonna say this joke, so I, I shouldn't tell you it's a joke before I say it, right? <laughs> uh, I was gonna say that uh, I'm so glad to see so many familiar masks, uh, but, uh, so, never doubt Thomas. Uh, the Catholic Aquinas is evangelical and Protestant. Uh, that title deserves an explanation. Uh, as Cindy said, I'm a revert. I left the Catholic Church as a very young man. I was 13 years old, and I'll have something to say about that in a few minutes. But in my journey back to the church, it was really Thomas Aquinas and his work that I continually was drawn toward and illuminated some of the issues that uh, were difficult for me during my time as a kind of budding philosopher. The title, the subtitle, what I'm trying to drive at there, and I'll, I'll tell you why I, I gave it that subtitle in terms of the issues discussed in the book. There are four issues over which uh, Protestants and Catholics, and even between different Christians within the same tradition, dispute. And Aquinas, I think, can be helpful in us understanding them. So the first issue that I discuss in the book, and I'm actually going to come back to that uh, towards the end of the lecture, and that is the issue of natural law and natural theology. So one of the disagreements that usually arises between certain evangelicals and Catholics has to do with whether we can know things about God and the moral law through our natural reason, that is reason without the benefit of divine revelation. And certain evangelicals believe that that belief diminishes our reliance on divine revelation and also uh, does not truly appreciate the severity of the fall or the noetic effects of sin upon our cognitive abilities. And so they think that the Catholic Church and Aquinas overrate these abilities. What I discovered when reading Aquinas is that in fact Aquinas says all the same things about the noetic effects of sin that in fact evangelicals believe in. So that's why when I, in, in the subtitle says, um, the, uh, a Catholic one says evangelical 
and Protestant. So there's a sense in which the Catholic Aquinas aligns himself with evangelicals. Now, another issue I deal with is the doctrine of justification. That's in the second to the last chapter of the book. And the doctrine of justification is the doctrine over which the Reformation arose. Uh, the question that had to be answered had to do with the relationship between faith and works and the role that grace plays in uh, our performance of those works. And there are certain evangelical scholars, some of whom uh, I knew, uh, they've since passed away, that argued that Aquinas got the doctrine of justification right, and only if the Catholic Church had stuck with Aquinas, uh, we wouldn't have needed the Reformation. And among the, the thinkers who thought this way or made this argument, were some of you may have heard of these uh, gentlemen, R.C. Sproul, John Gerstner, two great reform scholars, and, the, and also Norm Geisler, who recently passed away, uh, who was the founder of Southern Evangelical Seminary in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And one of the reasons why I think they read Aquinas that way is that Aquinas is writing about justification and grace and the way in which God interacts with us without the acrimony of the divisions that arise at the Reformation. And there's another reason, too. They just love Aquinas, and they don't want him to be wrong. <laughs> and so in that sense, uh, the Catholic Aquinas is also, so in a way, these evangelicals who hold to what they think is a Reformation view of grace and justification, and yet are drawn to Aquinas, they're a lot more Catholic than they think. Now, the two other issues I deal with in the book, in the middle chapters, one has to do with a question that arose, uh, it's actually been bandied about for quite some time, but it's one that became quite prominent in the media in 20, late 2015 when a professor at Wheaton College uh, was eventually terminated because she said in a Facebook post that uh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And uh, I think Aquinas can be really helpful here in understanding why I think she was right, but not in the way she thinks that she was right. <laughs> so for Aquinas, Aquinas uh, believed that we could know things about God, as I said earlier, by the use of our natural reason. So supposing um, uh, you are... Uh, let's say, offering an argument for God's existence to somebody, and they're convinced that God exists. And who is God? God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. He is almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, and simple. Uh, he is the one, he is the being that has underived existence. Everything else has existence that's derived from him. Supposing somebody comes to that conclusion, and you're trying to get them to become Catholic, and you know what? They come to believe in God, but they become Muslim <laughs> instead of Catholic. Now, supposing you have another friend who is an atheist. You convince him of the existence of God by the same kind of argument. He comes to the same conclusion about the nature of God. God is uh, all-powerful, simple, uh, all-loving, 
and has underived existence. Right? Same attributes. And then it turns out he wants to be received into the Catholic Church. Does he believe in the same God as the other guy? <laughs> of course he does. The difference has to do with that they have different faiths. And so Aquinas makes a distinction between the preambles of faith and the articles of faith. And so how somebody comes to believe in God, perhaps as a result of an intellectual argument, like the two individuals I mentioned earlier, uh, they accept the preambles of faith, that is, or at least an aspect of the preambles of faith about the nature and existence of God. But then when they are moved to believe in what they think is a special revelation, whether it is the Quran or the Christian Bible. Those are things that they believe are specially revealed by God to human beings that can't be accessed through natural reason. So it turns out that the Muslim and the Catholic disagree with each other, right, about things uh, uh, that, but those are things that only that can only be specially revealed through God himself. Uh, they are obviously inconsistent with each other and contrary to each other. So what I argue in this chapter is that, yes, Muslims, Christians, and Jews worship the same God, but they don't share the same faith. And that, and that those, aren't the same, those aren't the same things. And I think um, the professor at Wheaton was offering more of a kind of, and I don't want to read too much into her, I don't, her motives, I, uh, but I suspect it was a much more of a kind of maybe squishy ecumenicalism or ecumenism, right? Um, uh, and Wheaton College uh, was not at that time willing to award her the John Lennon chair in nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Uh, <laughs> She, so I think that she was right, and I defended her, and received a lot of a lot of criticism for it. But I think she was correct, and I think what Aquinas can help us see is that, on one in one sense, she is correct, right? But she can you can say she's correct about that without, at the same time, having to sort of deny what you believe is true about your own faith. Okay, and then the other chapter in the book where I think Aquinas uh, can be helpful in terms of how uh, Catholics and evangelicals think about things, and it's in the area of science and theology. So over the past um, 20 years or so, there has been a movement among mostly evangelical Christians called the Intelligent Design Movement. And uh, very early on in that movement, about 20 years ago, uh, I had written several law review pieces defending the teaching of intelligent design in public schools. In fact, it was the basis of the dissertation that I wrote for my degree uh, that I earned at WashU Law School uh, 20 years ago. And I had a, a I, I really had a uh, sympathy for, for that movement and what they were trying to do. But as I began reading Aquinas and seeing how he described God as creator, I became much more skeptical of that position. In fact, to the point where I now I'm critical of, 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 the, of the intelligent design uh, position. Now, I want to make something clear. As Catholics, or as a Catholic, I believe God designed the universe, and I believe God obviously created it. But the way in which intelligent design theorists argue for design, I think diminishes the role that 
how God acts. And let me just give you a brief explanation of this. So uh, some of the intelligent design uh, defenders will say something like this. They'll say that um, if there is an aspect of nature that seems to be uh, designed, it seems to be complex in a particular kind of way, if we can exclude the explanations of chance and law. So think of something like rolling dice, right? So you roll dice and you know you get two sixes, right? Uh, there's a certain um, probability in that that if you did it, let's say, 20 times in a row, right, you would have to infer that there was some kind of um, explanation other than chance, right? You would say that there's some mischief going on, right? Supposing I walked into a casino in Vegas and where I grew up, by the way. By the way, nobody really grows up in Vegas. You just get older. So imagine if, uh, you know, I, I just roll the dice and I, you know, I get five sixes in a row. Well, I'll tell you one thing. There'll be, uh, the pit boss will call over the dealer uh, and there'll be some investigation, right? There's just, they understand probability theory, right? So the ID guys, what they do is they say, well, there are parts of nature that are like that. And if it can't be explained by chance or law, then it has to be, uh, there has to be an explanation of a designer, some kind of mind behind it. But the thing that Aquinas taught me, though, was that God just didn't create those slivers of nature of highly complex things that don't seem to be explainable by chance or law. He created the chance and law, too. And I think that if, um, if you, let's say, debate with the new atheist over the existence of God, and it's over this very thin sliver of nature, you're giving away too much real estate to unbelief. As Catholics and Christians, uh, we believe that God created the chance and the law, not just those parts of nature that at this point don't seem explicable in terms of chance and law. It teaches the wrong lesson about divine action because imagine if, let's say, 20 years from now, there is a scientific theory that can account for what seems to be inexplicable at this point. Uh, are we saying then, therefore, God no longer is necessary to account for the universe, right? or at least that part of nature? Right? One of the things that Aquinas teaches, and the church teaches, is that God doesn't need space in nature to act. And this actually helps us understand the relationship between works and, and faith and grace. That is, when we talk about uh, uh, doing good works because we are moved by the grace that God has imparted to us, he gets all the credit for that, and yet we cooperate with that grace. And so there isn't a zero-sum game, and that's also true of creation as well. So it isn't as if God needs this space to act. If you do that, then what you're doing, you're treating God as just another creature or having the same kind of powers as creatures. And so those four issues, um, natural law, natural theology, uh, the issue of uh, intelligent design, divine action and, um, and nature, uh, justification, and the same God question. On those four issues, uh, 
uh, I think that Aquinas can be, be illuminating. Now, let me say a few things uh, about uh, how um, Aquinas uh, was instrumental in my, in my journey uh, back to the Catholic Church. Uh, reversion stories are actually a little bit more interesting than philosophy. Uh, uh, more people watch the journey home than they do uh, philosophy YouTube videos. Right? So I returned, back, I returned to the Catholic Church in April of 2007 while I was president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I resigned uh, a week after returning to the church. Uh, so for one week, the Evangelical Theological Society had a Catholic president. They can't change that. That will forever be true. Uh, not even God can change that because he can't change the past. Well, that's another philosophical issue. Um, so I went to confession for the first time in over 30 years. Uh, I went to confession at a small parish outside of Waco called St. Jerome's and went into confession and I said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been over 30 years since my last confession. Uh, I can't remember them all. And he just said, just give me general categories. And it was two Hail Marys and Our Father. <laughs> and my wife filed a protest for my penance. Um, so what led me there? What led me back to the church? And how did Aquinas factor into that? Well, I grew, I, as I said, I grew up Catholic. Uh, I left the church uh, uh, in the early 1970s or mid-1970s. Um, uh, my parents uh, had a friend, uh, an older gentleman uh, named Frank Strabla, who was, uh, went to their house uh, evangelizing them. They, he was actually Catholic, but he was part of the Catholic Charismatic Movement and left on my parents' coffee table uh, a copy of the New Testament. It was one of those good news for modern man New Testaments. I don't know if you know about the, the New English translation. There are little stick figures in it. And uh, I didn't know it was a Bible. Uh, I just began reading it. I mean, I didn't know it was a Bible. Yeah, I was Catholic. Okay. Uh, and I, uh, I was really drawn to the person of Christ in, in, in the book. And so I called up my parents' friend, and he uh, offered to pick me up every Thursday night and take me to this Jesus People Church in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, and so my parents let him do it, which is astonishing to me. Uh, and I went there every, it was called Maranatha House. It was one of these old houses built in the 1920s in downtown Las Vegas. And there were a bunch of hippies there. And they had their acoustic guitars and we sang praise songs. And they had a library, though, in the church. And I, was, I gravitated to that. And it was there that I began reading books on theology and uh, listening to these tapes. And I continued to go there. And then in high school, kind of went through a period of unbelief. And then towards the end of uh, my high school years, my senior year, went back to attending evangelical churches. And what drew me to those churches was a kind of serious, seriousness of faith. I uh, did not, uh, I went to 12 years of Catholic school. Um, I'm not sure I was catechized very well. 
Uh, it was during a very tumultuous period in American Catholic history. I'll never forget uh, the change uh, in 1969. We had um, these Filipino nuns that had taught at the elementary school I had attended. They were very traditional nuns, um, wearing those uh, rosaries with the size of a real guy on the cross. I mean, it was, they, were, they were serious nuns. And then all of a sudden, uh, the next year, there were nuns that were there that didn't dress like sisters. And all the religion classes changed. We started reading things like Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Uh, you know, so there was a complete sea change, and um, and it was around it was a, two or three years later that I began finding myself uh, as a v very young teenager, 12, 13 years old, attending uh, these evangelical uh, churches, and then again my during my uh, at the end of my high school time. Uh, but I still retained a very much a love of learning theology and philosophy. And I suspect that probably had a lot more to do with my Catholic formation than I had thought. Right? I, I sometimes, as I have already done so this evening, been critical of my catechization, but some, they did something right, right? Because that was retained. And went to college um, and uh, majored in philosophy. Um, oh, one more thing. I, I forgot to mention this. Um, when I was... 13, uh, my parents were troubled by the fact that I had, uh, that I was going to this evangelical uh, church. And so they signed me up for a four-day retreat uh, at um, a, a local Catholic center in Las Vegas that was run by the Dominicans. And that was the first time I'd heard about Thomas Aquinas. I would go up, I, I attended every one of these, uh, these meetings, uh, there was prayer and lectures on, on the spiritual life and theology. And I, I had my Bible. I'd bring my big leather Bible with me. And I would walk up to the priests and start asking questions and interrogating them. I was really an annoying little 13-year-old. <laughs> and they were so patient and kind to me. But I can easily imagine my Italian mother, uh, you know, talking to my dad saying, oh, maybe the Dominicans will help. Uh, well, you know, they did stick with me uh, because uh, one of them did bring up Thomas Aquinas. And when I was uh, at a Christian bookstore in my, the end of my senior year in high school, uh, I was talking to the owner. And I said, I, I, do you have any books on philosophy? I want to, you know, I've, and he said, yeah, there's one here by a guy named Norm Geisler. But he's kind of weird. He's an evangelical that likes Thomas Aquinas. And I had remembered Thomas Aquinas. So I picked that book up, and it was called Philosophy of Religion. I frankly didn't understand 90% of it. Uh, later on, when I went to college, I reread it. I understood more of it. And Norm, who became a friend years later, uh, in that book, really offers a kind of defense of the existence of God, religious experience, and answers the problem of evil at, in a Thomistic fashion. And so very early on, I begin appropriating uh, 
a, a Thomistic Catholic view of the intellectual life. Uh, after my time at, at, uh, in college, I went on uh, to study for my PhD at Fordham University in New York City. Uh, why Fordham? It's a Catholic school. I was an evangelical. Well, uh, I didn't know really where to go to graduate school. Uh, nobody in my family had ever gone to graduate school before. Uh, my father had a bachelor's degree in business administration. Uh, there wasn't any online rankings of departments and doctoral programs and all that kind of stuff that kids have today. And so I talked to a couple of my professors and I applied to two, three schools, Claremont uh, Graduate University, uh, because one of my profs recommended it, and University of Southern California, because Dallas Willard taught there and he was a prominent evangelical philosopher. And then Fordham, because my mom said, in her Brooklyn accent, you should go to Fordham. <laughs> that was it. And so I applied there, and they offered me a fellowship, and I had the opportunity to study uh, under uh, two great Thomists, uh, Father Gerald McCool and Father Norris Clark, and I didn't know who they were. I just thought, these are priests that teach philosophy, and I'm interested in this stuff, so I'll take their classes. And I, in McCool's class on medieval humanism, I read for the first time Augustine's Confessions, and I remember uh, writing in the margins of my copy of the Confessions, little, in fact, I still have the copy of that book, uh, it was by, I think edited by Vor Vernon Bork, who I think was at, uh, at uh, St. Louis University, uh, and I, I have a little line with an arrow pointed to a, a paragraph, and, it's, and I say, this sounds really Catholic. You know, because as an evangelical, I mean, most of us were taught that Augustine, you know, is a kind of paleo-Protestant in some ways, right? And I, and I was sort of surprised by how Catholic he sounded. Uh, when I took Father Clark's class on Thomas Aquinas, uh, I only read the portions of Aquinas that dealt with issues concerning faith and reason, issues concerning the existence of God, uh, the belief in miracles, the existence of the soul, those sorts of things that evangelicals and Catholics uh, have in common. Um, but I left, nevertheless, um, Fordham as a, as a committed Thomist, um, a confused Thomist. Uh, the late Ralph McInerney would have called me a peeping Thomist, uh, <laughs> though I like to think I was a doting Thomist. That actually was the original title of this book called Doting Thomist, and uh, Baylor University Press, which publishes, didn't like it. And so, by your reaction, they made a good choice. Um, so, I then, uh, after um, earning my doctorate, um, actually, before that, I got married. I uh, married uh, uh, a woman who I'm still married to named Frankie. So, we are Frank and Frankie. Uh, in fact, she is now, I think she's watching on YouTube. Um, and I was hired by the school at which I earned my bachelor's degree, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And soon after being hired, the department chair there asked me to teach classes in political and moral philosophy. Uh, an area that I had interest in, but I had not done much work in graduate school. 
And as somebody that was a cultural and social conservative, I wanted to introduce my students to uh, philosophers that defended uh, those traditional points of view. And virtually every philosopher that I found who defended those points of view were Catholics. And so I began reading uh, several Catholic thinkers. Uh, Father Scholl uh, is one of them, uh, John Finnis, uh, John Courtney Murray, and a host of others. And uh, I remember reading Evangelium Vitae, John Paul II's encyclical on uh, the Gospel of Life. And it was during that time that I began working on a book uh, on, and, and actually I've published several books on, on abortion and the sanctity of human life. And then uh, John Paul II released uh, um, Fide et Ratio, his encyclical on faith and reason, and I could not put that down. I remember calling one of my philosopher friends who's an evangelical, J.P. Moreland, who teaches at Biola, and I called J.P. Uh, because uh, J.P.'s understanding of faith and reason, uh, as I began reading Fide et Ratio, it occurred to me that J.P. would find this uh, consistent with his own ideas. So I called up J.P. and I read him a paragraph and I asked him to guess who it was. And he never guessed the Pope. He reeled off the names of all these very prominent evangelical philosophers. I said, it's the Pope. And he says, wow, I guess he's one of us. <laughs> and sure enough, yes, he is. Uh, so um, I began uh, appropriating more and more of Catholic thinking, but sort of indirectly through uh, these moral and social questions, never thinking about issues concerning um, ecclesiology, the nature of the church, or the sacraments. Those things didn't really interest me. But my wife was interested in those things. So when we were living in Southern California in the 90s, we had friends that invited us to a local uh, Episcopal church that they were attending called St. James Episcopal in Newport Beach. And we began attending uh, their mid-morning service that was very similar to the Novus Ordo Mass that my parents attended in the Catholic Church. So my wife, who had no background in Catholicism or high church liturgy uh, asked me the first time we were there, she goes, you know, this is really Catholic. Why don't we go to the Catholic church? And I said, no, we can't do that. You know, this, the Catholics are wrong here and here and here. And she goes, well, I, I, you know, so for her, she was drawn to the, 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 um, the, the liturgical, beautiful parts of, 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 of that aspect of Christianity. Uh, it's not a coincidence that she is also a stained glass artist. Uh, so uh, several years later, um, oh, as, as I spend, I'm spending a year at, at Princeton University. I was sharing this story earlier with Cindy. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, there were a, uh, several other visiting fellows besides myself, one of whom uh, is Hadley Arcus. I don't know if you know who Hadley Arcus is. Uh, so Hadley uh, called me up one evening uh, and asked me why I wasn't Catholic. 
And so I spent about a half an hour explaining to him why I wasn't Catholic, and he said, that is, those are very lame reasons. <laughs> and I said, what do you care? You're not Catholic. He wasn't at the time, he is now. And he says, well, if you walk down the aisle, I'll walk with you. And so I only found out years later, actually at his baptism and confirmation in this very room, that my brother, one of my brothers, my younger brother Patrick, very devout Catholic, called up Hadley Arcus and Robbie George and said, you have to help my brother return to the Catholic Church. And so they apparently they plotted together <laughs> to figure out who was going to ask me. And so it was Hadley that was given the task. I did not know that until right before walking in for Hadley's baptism confirmation uh, uh, and First Holy Communion, in which this gentleman, Father Scholl, was one of the celebrants. Um, and so Robbie told the whole story. I did not know that. And I wish I had. I would have included that story in the, in the book. So um, during that time, I, more people began asking me why I wasn't Catholic. And several of my friends converted to Catholicism. And finally, um, I decided to uh, spend considerable amount of time with one of those friends, Jay Budzieszewski. Jay is a University of Texas professor of government and philosophy and uh, converted to Catholicism in, I believe, 2003. And he and I were both speakers at the University of Dallas. And uh, one mo the morning uh, after we had both spoke, uh, we had breakfast together with our wives, and I asked Jay, uh, explain to me why you returned to the Catholic Church, and I told him the four issues that were the most difficult for me. And they were uh, the, the sacrament of penance, the Catholic doctrine of justification, apostolic succession, um, and the nature of the Eucharist. And so he, he encouraged me to begin reading the church fathers on these issues. And so I began doing that. And I had in, at home a, the collection of about half the writings of the church fathers that I had actually purchased as a 15-year-old. I had purchased them because I wanted to be able to answer Mormon missionaries that knocked on my door <laughs> who had said things that the, like, that the classical Christian concept of God is really uh, uh, stolen from Plato and Aristotle. And so I wanted to prove to them that no matter how far back you go in the history of the church, this doctrine of God is found. And so I went and bought at a Christian bookstore, the early church fathers, so I, I, but I never looked at them or read them concerning these particular issues. And so I did that. And the thing that stood out was not only did my hero Thomas Aquinas hold all these views, but he would often cite fathers deep in the history of the church, including Augustine, on these very questions. And so the other thing that occurred to me is that on the very issues over which, or on which, Protestants and Catholics agree, like uh, the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the inspiration of Scripture, no church council, at least until after 
uh, the first millennium was ever convened to settle that question. Everyone kind of, well, excuse me, yeah, those questions on which they agree, there were councils that were convened, right? So, uh, so I, I kind of messed that up. So, the, uh, uh, so if you, you go back to the Council of Nicaea, uh, Chalcedon were convened to settle these questions about the nature of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, and so forth. Those are the things over on which Catholics and Protestants agree. But where do they disagree on issues like the Eucharist, penance, apostolic succession? Those were not ever debated. They were just presupposed as sort of true. And so to me, the thing that really stood out about the fathers was how matter-of-factly they talked about these things. And so I'd reached a point where I concluded that the Catholic Church could be right about these things. And so I thought, I have to read other people on this to see how they respond. And so one of the books I read was a book by Mark Knoll uh, called Is the Reformation Over? Mark Knoll is, I think, just recently retired history professor from the University of Notre Dame who is a evangelical. He had actually taught for quite some time at Wheaton College before he moved to Notre Dame. And I read the book, and the thing that really stood out in the book was how much Noel and his co-author praised the Catholic Catechism. And he said, you know, evangelicals can agree with like 90% of it. And I found that shocking. And then I thought, I have to read some reviews of this book, that critical reviews by uh, evangelicals. And I did. And one of the reviews was by Carl Truman. Some of you may know of Carl Truman. He just actually published an outstanding book on the nature of the human person where he deals with the roots of, of much of our debates today about transgender. Uh, I wrote an endorsement for the book. I right now cannot remember the name of it off the top of my head, uh, but it is an outstanding book. Uh, I've, now, I've since become very good friends with Carl, but at the time I did not know Carl Truman. He had reviewed uh, the Knoll book uh, for a, uh, a website called Reformation 21, which is a reformed website. And this is what Carl says in his review. He says, every year I tell my Reformation history class that Roman Catholicism is, at least in the West, the default position. Rome has a better claim to historical continuity and institutional unity than any Protestant denomination, let alone the strange hybrid that is evangelicalism. In the light of these facts, therefore, we need good, solid reasons for not being Catholic. Not being Catholic should, in other words, be a positive act of will and commitment, something we need to get out of bed determined to do each and every day. It would seem, however, that if Noel and his co-author are correct, Many who call themselves evangelical really lack any good reason for such an act of will. And the obvious conclusion, therefore, should be that they do the decent thing and rejoin the Roman Catholic Church. I cannot go down that path myself, primarily because of my view of justification and because of my ecclesiology. But those who reject the former and lack the latter have no real basis upon which to perpetuate what is, in effect, an act of schism on their part. For such, the Reformation is over. For me, the fat lady is yet to sing. In fact, I am not sure at this time that she has even left her dressing room." Unquote. So that, when I read that, 
it occurred to me immediately that the burden was on me, not on the church. That my parents had baptized me in the Catholic Church, in the Latin Rite, and that I was in schism with the church, and that I needed the good reason not to be in schism, or to remain in schism. And so at that point, I went to my wife, and I said, I think I'm going to return to the Catholic Church. And she said, it's about time. <laughs> and so we met with uh, a priest that had actually uh, uh, befriended us when we first arrived at Baylor University, Father Timothy Vaverick, to whom this book, Never Doubt Thomas, is dedicated. Father Timothy is, uh, the, still lives in the area and is a pastor at uh, St. Mary of the Assumption in West Texas, is the unofficial Catholic chaplain of Baylor University. And uh, I count him as one of the many people at Baylor, Catholics, uh, who were instrumental in making it much easier for me uh, to return to the church. So that's what got me to the point at which I went to confession. Uh, and so we, my, I, I didn't have to go to RCIA. All I had to do to go to confession. My wife, on the other hand, because she had not been confirmed uh, or had received a Holy Communion, she had to go through RCIA, but uh, she got a special deal. Uh, she uh, was um, received into the church uh, a month after me under the condition that she would go to RCA afterwards and, under the, and, and the condition that she gave to me is I had to attend with her. So I went to RCIA with her uh, for six months. So what's, what's, uh, what's the lesson here of, uh, of Aquinas? I'm going to wrap things up and then open the floor uh, for questions. Um, when I taught at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, I had a student uh, who never hesitated to challenge me in class. Uh, one day, after I had told the class that the primary point of studying philosophy is the pursuit of truth, she immediately asked the question, why is the truth important? And I responded instantaneously, do you want the true answer or the false one? <laughs> so in the rhetorical quip, I was trying to make the point that sometimes the answers to our questions are right under our noses. But we often do not have the presence of mind to realize it or even know where to look. I kind of feel that way about how Aquinas' thought sort of worked in my own life, uh, both in terms of these issues of faith and reason which dominate this book, and also those issues concerning uh, those doctrines uh, that were important in dealing with when returning to the church. Now, having lived on both sides of the Tiber, I'm keenly aware of the pitfalls of reading one's theological rivals, not to mention one's ecclesial patrimony without charity, inquisitiveness, or imagination. For this reason, it is, a, it is fitting that we end this talk with these prayerful words penned by Thomas Aquinas, creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your light penetrate the darkness of my understanding. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we have time for about, what, 15 minutes or so of questions? Okay, so any, any questions? Um, 
it's a great a great story. Um, is this microphone here? Oh. Uh, I just was curious. Do you find yourself um, if witnessing the right word to to Protestants, um, evangelicals, uh, and try to you know share your story with them? I I have uh, on several occasions uh, talked with. Uh, pastors who have contacted me. Now, I don't go door to door, <laughs> you know, or anything like that. Uh, but I've had, um, I've had, I think, think, since 2007, at least 20 to 30 evangelical pastors, some professors. I had one friend um, I, I, who teaches at a well-known Protestant seminary in the Dallas area. And he, we met uh, halfway between Waco and Dallas because he was afraid that he would be seen with me uh, in a restaurant. <laughs> now, not that, I, but, you know, because he had shown, at least in his own writings and teaching, some sympathy for Catholicism. Um, so I've, I've, had, I've had many of, many of those. I've had students talk to me. In fact, when I was contemplating returning to the church, I had one student come to my office uh, this, when I first taught at Baylor, uh, I was not in the philosophy department. I was in a, 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 a center there called the Institute for Church-State Studies, and, and it used to have a doctoral program. And so one of those doctoral students who was an ordained Baptist minister came to my office, and he said, my wife and I are thinking of becoming Catholic. And I had not decided in my own mind what I was going to do. So I, I had this thinking, uh, and some of you may disagree with me on this, but I think that if you're, if and it depends, I think, on the person. Because I didn't know, I didn't want to talk this guy out of being Baptist, because what if it turned out that that was the only kind of Christianity he found plausible? And so if he turned out to give up his Baptist faith, he'd become nothing? So, I mean, there's that. So I've, I've written a little bit of this called Intra-Christian Apologetics. So I think we, it, as Catholics, for those who are here who, who are Catholic, I think we do have an obligation to answer people's questions, to give them answers. We also, I think, in some cases, actually make an affirmative defense of our faith and engage in evangelism. That there's no, I don't dispute that. But I, I think that in some context, you sort of have to engage in a little bit of prudence, right? So, I mean, I know of, for example, Catholics, bad Catholics. I know bad Catholics who are, they, it's either going to be a bad Catholic or an atheist. There's no way on God's green earth will ever be an evangelical. So I think you have to be, and I think there are evangelicals that would never entertain being Catholics. And so uh, when you're trying to, let's say, draw them to the church, I think it's always good to emphasize what the church offers them and not to sort of be too critical of their particular faith. But it depends, right? Some people, it's okay to be critical. They, they want to mix it up, right? Thank you. I probably qualify as somebody who'd be a bad Catholic or an atheist, just so you know. Um, <laughs> so two questions. The first one is, obviously, at least in my view, the, the embrace of Thomism by the church, particularly in the late 19th century, had a lot to do with the dialogue with modernity, right, and liberal reason. So to the extent to which we are going to Protestantize Aquinas, if you'll forgive that, does that undermine that dialogue with modernity? And maybe that's more important. And number two, if we are to think about ecumenical uh, virtues and prioritize, prioritize that over the dialogue with modernity, is Aquinas a barrier with respect to, let's say, the Eastern Orthodox Church? 
vis-a-vis the difference in their understanding of God and the essence energies distinction versus the Thomistic view? Yeah, great questions. Uh, concerning the first, um, uh, concerning med- the question, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're, you're asking about uh, the role of Thomistic thought in, in, in interacting with... That's right. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't. He does do that to be sure, but I'm not. Sh- I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm. I. This is my reading of Thomas on on reason. I, I, I think, if, you know, remember he he at least the Summa, uh, Summa Theologica is 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 written for, uh, young seminarians, right, and he's sort of giving them the faith, right? But it's not, I don't think it's pastoral. I mean, in the sense that, so like, the, one of the things I, I didn't have time to talk about, it's actually in my notes, I was gonna, uh, you know, one of the criticisms that's leveled against atomism by certain evangelicals, one of whom I, I'm gonna, I quote Carl Henry, is that uh, Thomas teaches that you need an argument before you have faith in God. And one of the things that Thomas is careful about, you see, the clue that he rejects that. Why? Because, first of all, because most people don't have time for this kind of stuff, right? Uh, you know, they are going to church and receiving the sacraments, right? I think, for example, of my grandmother, I, I, my sainted Italian grandmother, who I lived with while I was in graduate school at Fordham. I lived with my Italian grandma in Brooklyn, who was a daily mass communicant, while her Protestant grandson was going to study with the Jesuits. <laughs> Sounds like a sitcom, right? Uh, so, um, so I think about her, like if, if she recited every Sunday Mass, the Nicene Creed, I don't think she would know what consubstantial with the Father, the Son is consubstantial with the Father, right? I mean, she, she so I, th- and, and Aquinas addresses that, right? That there are, that, that, that it's not, not every Christian is supposed to be a kind of philosopher, right? So, um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm really addressing what you're, you're, you're driving at. It is maybe a strategic question. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. See, yeah, that's okay. Let let. I, I, I'm going to connect the two questions. I think that in a way Protestantism is an extension of modernity. And so I do think giving you know, a Thomistic response to the modern understanding of reason and nature I think it's an, more than an adequate answer to those challenges, but it also is a way to answer, I think, some of the Protestant challenges about uh, grace and works. Uh, because I do think this, the same issues concerning uh, uh, divine action and nature, I think, come up in both the issue of justification as well as some of the, issue, the, the issues that get, get raised in the modern era about the role that God plays in creation and sustaining uh, sustaining nature. So I don't know if that, that really answers it. Um, <laughs> sorry. 
So this gentleman. Sir? Yeah, I, I, you didn't go into any great detail about this, and frankly, I, I can't say that I know a lot about it, but I would be interested to know whether you thought, for instance, Norman Geisler and R.C. Sproul misunderstood uh, Thomas Aquinas or if they misunderstood the Reformation. It's a good question. Um, I think, <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to say they misunderstood the Reformation because they, they, knew, the Reform they, know the Ref they knew the Reformation better than I do. Uh, they, uh, uh, Sproul himself, you know, studied extensively Calvin and uh, Luther, uh, it, far beyond anything I, I've, ever, uh, I've ever studied. Um, I think they misunderstood Aquinas, and I think the reason why they misunderstood him I think it was twofold. One, uh, they found in Aquinas intellectual resources that they could not find in their own tradition. Uh, ways of thinking about the relationship between faith and reason that they thought was helpful in defending their faith against uh, modern understandings of reason. Uh, I think the other part of it is that they just, and for that reason they loved Aquinas, <laughs> and and they read, his under, they read into his understanding of grace uh, something that they thought was not in, or was, in the, uh, was not in the Council of Trent, so, uh, or, or any of the later um, Catholic documents that address issues concerning justification. Now, one of the things I point out in my chapter is I, I, I have a, I go through uh, the, um, all the way back to Augustine, Council of Orange, uh, Aquinas, uh, Council of Trent and Contemporary Catechism and show that it's exactly, there's continuity in, in terms of that issue. So I, I think that they just didn't read Aquinas well and I think it's because they just loved him. Right? It's the same reason why sometimes we don't see things in people we love. <laughs> right? So I, I think it's the same kind of thing. Um, now what's there's one thing about, about Geisler, though, is I think he also uh, misread the church fathers on this. So one of, one of, the, uh, one of the things I did when, 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 I was, when Jay Budzieszewski encouraged me to read the fathers is that I read uh, a several systematic theology textbooks uh, written by evangelicals that dealt with justification but also claimed to rely on the fathers. And, one of them was Geisler's four volumes, uh, which I actually wrote an endorsement for <laughs> when I was an evangelical. And so I, I, I read that section and I went through each one of the quotes. I think he had about maybe a, a dozen quotes from different church fathers, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, John Chrysostom, Augustine, several, several of them. And I would go back to the original and like, for example, the, the one by, from Chrysostom, uh, if you read it, read an isolation of the uh, of, of of the surrounding text, it sound, he sounds like John Calvin. But if you read, let's say, the next page, Chrysostom is talking about praying for the dead. And so, well, how did Norm miss that? And I, I just and so I think that there is a kind of there was a kind of not that I don't think it was intentional. I think once he he found what he liked, he did, just didn't read anymore. Right. So, I mean that's. I think that's the explanation that makes the most sense. Uh, I think we, all, we can all fall for that, by the way, and I probably have done that myself on numerous occasions. You don't think Aquinas was a Protestant? 
No, I do not. I'm not making that <laughs> argument at all. Oh, no, not even close. No, no, I'm, I'm making the argument that Protestants that, that there's two types of Protestants I'm dealing with in this book. There's the Protestants that like Aquinas, but read back into his doctrine of just, his view of justification, something that he really didn't hold. That, in other words, if, if you read Aquinas, as I think you should read him, he's in perfect continuity with his predecessors and successors. And then there's the other kind of Protestant, like Carl Henry, an anti-Thomist, who says, uh, look, the Thomistic project is this hyper-rationalistic view of faith, and you, Aquinas and the Catholic Church are teaching you need an argument before you have faith, but that's crazy, right? And I think that that's wrong too. In fact, Aquinas himself says, if, if, if that were the case, it would, we would be guilty of Pelagianism. We would, I mean, that there would have to be an intellectual work that someone would have to have before they could have faith. And that clearly has been rejected by the church. So no, I'm not saying Aquinas was a Protestant. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, one more question. Yeah. Oh, okay, go ahead. So, uh, it's more of a spiritual, I don't know. Sure. How do you balance how do you maintain the healthy balance on faith and reason? Sometimes I find myself justifying with all the reasoning I have. Whatever I like to do, I justify it with my reasoning. Uh, so how do you have that healthy balance? You know, I think Are are you married by the way? Okay, so I'm gonna, use, I'm gonna use a marriage illustration. So imagine you woke up every morning and you rehearsed the arguments of why you married your wife. You got up and you go, oh, what a great day. Oh, she's this, that, and, and, and that was the reason why you stayed married. I guarantee you would not stay married. <laughs> because what would happen, it'd be just totally based on the sort of intellectual working through. Right. Think of your relationship to God and the church as like a marriage, right? You give your entire self to it, right? You give your entire self to your, to your, to your spouse, you, to your wife. And uh, there are reasons to be sure, right? But there, it's more than just reason. And this is why I think that you need a, 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 a devotional life, uh, a life of prayer, right? Um, Think about anything, I mean, even outside of faith, outside of marriage, if you treated everything as a mere intellectual exercise based on reason, you probably wouldn't stay in your job very long <laughs> either, right? So um, what I think makes the Catholic view of faith and reason so attractive, or at least made it attractive to me, was that it kind of is commonsensical, right? Like it's that's the way most of the ways in which we, 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 we uh, think about or, uh, or engage life, right? We have reasons for things, but we also inherit certain traditions and ways of doing things that are in a sense reasonable, but we, don't, we never argue for them, right? I mean, uh, we just sort of accept them. It's part of the given, right? So I think, uh, so for me, I think what's really been helpful to me, I, I, when I was an evangelical, um, and I, I would think I was overly rationalistic, and, and this is going to sound counterintuitive to some Catholics, but I think one of the, the features, at least of the evangelical, the, intellectual, the world of, uh, of intellectuals, uh, evangelical intellectuals, is that there is a kind of 
hyper-rationalism, that everything is sort of has to be argued for. Uh, you need a reason for everything. And I think the Catholic view, uh, what I like, what really, as I said, draws, draw, drew me to it was that there's, there's room for mystery, right? I mean, the idea that, I mean, it occurred to me about five years ago, uh, the idea that I have to understand everything about God in order to believe in him makes God not worthy of belief. I mean, it's like, I don't want to, I mean, if, if I can understand God, then, you know, what's the point? <laughs> Right, so I mean, so the whole ineffability of God, his incomprehensibility, which when I was younger was not attractive. I thought, I want to understand everything. I want to understand every argument. I want to know everything that I could possibly know to defend my faith. And the, re the reality is, is that very few people come to faith through intellectual arguments, right? Some do, but most people don't. They come to faith because they sometimes, most often we'll see examples of people that are able to uh, live a life of devotion at the same time, show themselves to be fully informed people that are willing to address these questions, right? So it's, it's a much more uh, complex thing. So how do I, that, what I do, it, I, 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 I try as much as I can to uh, uh, feed my soul as much as my mind, so. Towards God, a spiritual life or interior life. Why do people? Yeah, some people are very knowledgeable about so many things, but uh, when it comes to re reasoning about God and interior life, it's very important. I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, I, I, I really can't answer. I mean, I, I think it may have to do with um, uh, the way in which they've been educated. Right, so um, if you've read, for example, maybe this is not a great example, but I think uh, the book The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins uh, is an example of a very, very smart man, well-informed about the sciences, who has worse than a Sunday school view of the nature of, of Christian faith or, or any other faith for that matter. Um, and I think part of the problem is uh, the church doesn't do enough uh, evangelism addressing those kinds of uh, those kinds of criticism. So um, how that happens, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm always amazed uh, when when I when I run into somebody, let's say that is an ex-Catholic. Uh, I have many of people uh, write on 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 my blog when I announced that I returned to the church, saying things like, I, I grew up Catholic and I know it's wrong, right? And of course, um, you know, I grew up Catholic too. <laughs> and, and it turned out that I didn't know anything, you know? And so I, I'm assuming you don't know anything either, right? I mean, that's, and, and, I, and I had the benefit of a, a, a graduate degree from a Catholic institution, right? So I, I think it's, um, and we also can't underestimate the power and the draw of just novelty, right? So imagine I was catechized well. Well, I may have stayed in the church, but it, I don't know if, if the evangelical friends of mine and their, and their presentation w wouldn't have been attractive anyways, <laughs> right? I don't know. You know, there is something, 
you know, when you're a teenager, you sort of don't want to be like mom and dad, right? So, so there's all these factors that come into play that have nothing to do with reason. <laughs> no. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much.